0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today uh, joining us, political scientist Dennis Goldford, professor of political science at Drake University, Hello, Dennis. It's the first time we've had you on uh, in the new year. Welcome. Dennis Goldford, are you there?
2: Yes, I am. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, I can now. Okay. Uh, Thank you for joining us and to Megan Goldberg with us uh, as well for the first time in 2023. Megan, welcome to you. Assistant Professor of Political's American Politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Hello, Megan. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. And we want to invite our listeners, uh, as we love to have listener input on our Politics Wednesday edition, Uh, we are going to be roughly uh, dealing with uh, Iowa uh, politics, uh, Iowa legislative politics in the first half hour, and then go national in the second half hour. In the second half hour, we want to talk about the debt ceiling standoff, uh, the latest on the Biden classified documents case. And uh, with that news out of New Mexico, distressing news, uh, the connection, again, (laughs) we see between heated political rhetoric, um, uh, and the uh, violence. Uh, let's start off in, with the legislative news, though. In just a moment, a heads up, we'll talk about uh, uh, efforts in uh, this uh, legislative session to bring back the death penalty uh, to Iowa. It was abolished uh, nearly 60 years ago in 1965. Before that, let's talk about um, what appears to be the GOP Legislative priority for this session remember that this uh, session comes after an election in which Republicans increase their majorities in both chambers and uh, uh, we're seeing that Republican lawmakers put forward uh, their first bills uh, uh, with an ambitious agenda there and we heard the governor give her condition of the state address last night Iowans packed the Capitol rotunda to tell lawmakers how they feel. Uh, about the governor's signature education proposal Um, you've heard about a lot a lot here on ipr this bill would phase in over three years uh, and eventually allow any iowa student to access about seven thousand six hundred dollars in state money per year to be used to pay for private school now public schools would also gain access to about twelve hundred dollars in new money for each private school student in the state and Reynolds staff estimated the bill would cost about $340 million annually once it's uh, phased in. Now, uh, more than 120 Iowans last night uh, at the Rotunda parents, teachers, school administrators, lobbyists signed up to speak during a 90 minute public hearing. Hundreds more submitted comments online. In the end, about 44 got the chance to hear. Uh, Some of the thoughts direct share some of their thoughts directly with lawmakers. Let's hear a couple of them. First, an opponent Uh, here's one telling the House Education Reform Committee that they were concerned private schools would be able to discriminate uh, against some students.
3: Thank you to the members of the committee and thank you for being here on a relatively late evening. My name is Damian Thompson and I represent Iowa Safe Schools. We're an organization that works with over 10,000 LGBTQ students in all of Iowa's 99 counties. Our organization is registered as opposed to HSB 1. This bill would provide taxpayer dollars, public dollars, to institutions that openly discriminate in their admission and hiring practices in regards to LGBTQ Iowans. This isn't mere speculation. As 75% of Iowa private schools have policies which either explicitly or implicitly discriminate against LGBTQ students in admissions or LGBTQ adults in hiring practices. These same schools also discriminate against students with disabilities when it comes to admissions. Providing public dollars to schools that discriminate is fundamentally incompatible with the concept of equal protection under the law. I would urge the members of this committee to stand against this bill, which will ultimately enable exclusionary education. Thanks so much.
1: As we heard him introduce himself, Damian Thompson of Iowa Safe Schools uh, speaking yesterday evening at the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, Let's hear a voice of supporters uh, for this change. Uh, Here's a supporter telling the committee the funding is needed to give more families an opportunity to send their children to the school that best fits their needs.
4: My name is Trish Wilger, I'm the Executive Director of the Iowa Alliance for Choice in Education. We support this bill because it provides alternatives to all Iowa parents when it comes to educating their children in the form of an education savings account. We should be funding the education of children, not funding institutions. We should be funding the education of children, no matter where that education takes place. Unfortunately, this is painted as a public school versus private school issue, and we've heard so many passionate people on both sides of this issue come here tonight. Parents feel strongly about their choice and if they like it or not, and if their child is doing well there. We should be giving the opportunity to more parents to make those choices.
1: Trish Wilbur of the Iowa Alliance for School for Choice in Education speaking yesterday in the Capitol. Uh, Let's get um, your first initial thoughts here. Uh, Dennis Goldford, uh, uh, what do you make of this latest attempt uh, by Republicans? This is the third session that it's been put forward, uh, a brand new version, a very ambitious school voucher bill. Dennis Goldford, I think we have you there. Hello, where Dennis. Have,
2: have you got me yes. again? We're all, all these technical problems today. I don't <laughs> uh,
1: we, we've um, got you now. Go ahead, sir. Thanks.
2: Uh, as you said quite correctly, this is the governor's signature issue. The governor and Republicans generally after the last election have political power and they absolutely intend and desire to use it. And this is where we're seeing it show up the first time. The problem is, or the difficulty is, I should say, that when you talk about uh, schools and you talk about religion, you're talking about two very hot-button issues. People are tremendously personally concerned about these issues. And there are two issues in particular with regard to this school funding program. One, of course, is the question of whether Offering tuition support for students to attend religious schools, Uh, well, of course, they always say private schools, but according to one data, I managed to find 84% of all schools in Iowa that are private schools are religiously affiliated. Um, But if the state offers some sort of tuition subsidy for students to attend these private schools, the – regular, if you will, secular question is, are you depriving the state-supported public schools of funding and resources? And that's, of course, the concern of a lot of folks, especially in more rural areas. The other side of that coin is the religious coin, because again, everybody on the Republican side certainly is talking about private schools, but that means overwhelmingly here in Iowa, religion-based schools. And that raises the questions that we've always seen Fought over in religion clause jurisprudence at the Supreme Court level for as long as we've existed. Um, there's always been a tension between the Free Exercise Clause, which says that government shouldn't do anything to hinder people's religious belief and practice. And the establishment clause, which says government shouldn't essentially do anything to advance or support religious belief uh, and practice, and so they're they're always on a, in a tremendously tense relationship with each other. Uh, a recent Supreme Court decision, which I'm sure the governor's program is relying on from 2020, said that uh, states are not required to subsidize private education. But if they decide to do so, they cannot exclude religious schools from receiving those funds simply because they're religious. That was a Montana case from 2020. So the issue, of course, raises all sorts of hot-button concerns on the part of parents, on the part of legislators, on the part of schools, on the part of citizens generally. But this is the governor's, as you said at the start, signature issue. And she's Mm -hmm. got the power to do pretty much what she wants with it, as long as she doesn't irritate Republican support from rural areas.
1: Yeah. And that was the sticking point in the previous versions. Uh, Megan Megan Goldberg, your initial uh, volley of thoughts about this hot button issue currently here in Iowa.
5: Yeah, you know, I think Dennis um, really highlights that some of the, the sort of uh, turmoil that can come up with policies like this. It's remarkable sort of if you look over the past uh, few decades that a lot of the battles over culture, especially involving religion in the U.S., that education is really um, what gets caught in the crossfire often. When you're talking about religious upbringing, um, you get into a lot of a lot of Supreme Court uh, decisions. And. Um, You know, I think that Denetha is also entirely correct to point out that, um, you know, this is a really important, uh, policy for the governor. Um, and now it's become important because she's highlighted it so much, um, that sort of even divorced from whether or not this outcome is important to her, um, you know, dealing with another loss and another blow, um, to her agenda would really make her look fairly weak right now especially when she has a super majority but she has to and all the republicans are walking this line because um you know this policy if you sort of just like look at the distribution mm-hmm. of private schools in iowa uh you know there's a lot of really deeply conservative areas that don't have access to private schools um, and are fearful of further rural public school consolidation. And so I think that, um, and, and you know, the governor sort of successfully weeded out a lot of the elected officials from those areas uh, yeah. who were against the vouchers. And so I'm sort of curious to see what happens, um, you know, what, what the new members do and how their constituents are sort of talking to them about this issue. Because I think that, uh, I don't. I don't know how strong the public support really is for this policy in those areas.
1: Join our conversation with political scientists Megan Goldberg of Cornell College at Dennis Goldford of Drake University, initially talking about the um, priorities that the. Uh, Iowa Republican lawmakers seem to have here as we are in the midst of the second week of this 2023 uh, session. Uh, Let's go to Tom. Uh, Tom joined us, 1-866-780-9100. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Where are you calling from?
6: Des Moines, it looks like. Thanks. Calling from Beaverdale, yeah. Uh, Thanks for letting me call in. Um, I just, uh, I get a little excited here, so I'm going to try to keep myself under wraps, but Right. Um, you know, they seem to be really fast track in this thing. Uh, a couple of legislative leaders have said that, you know, they're going to sort of adjust the rules so they can move this through the court. And i uh just uh, 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 reiterate what the, your, your other guest just said. Uh, you know, she's got every – she being Governor Reynolds has got every reason to want to make sure she gets this thing through this time. I think she's already failed twice at it. And um, if they are successful in fast-tracking this thing, I just encourage any Iowan who opposes it, it it is time to call your legislator and make your your feelings known because uh, if you don't, uh, we're going to be caught kind of asleep at the switch, and it's a huge issue, you know. If you Uh, let me give me uh, just one more minute, um, you know, I'm a single guy. I'm a bachelor. I got no children. Uh, but I'm the youngest of eight kids. All of us went to uh, private schools uh, through all the way through high school and even into college, you know, and, private uh, schools.
1: So, you, you, know, went to, what, you
6: went why do I to have pri- a dog in this fight?
1: Yeah. You, you, okay, Tom, thank you very much. Um, 1-866-780-9100. Um, comment on this. Perhaps, Megan, you can comment on this. We have the, an education committee created this time. Uh, the sticking point was in the uh, Iowa House last time. So uh, Tom's concern, uh, obviously, we, we hear where he's coming from on this uh, as, as an opponent, but the this could be fast-tracked. How do you understand that, Megan?
5: Yeah, so I think that sort of what's happening in the state legislature right now really highlights, um, you know, a lot of it's, it's sort of the same theories come, these theories come from Congress and our understanding of how the institution works, that when uh, a party has control over the rules, that's a really powerful, um, you know, ability to have and that you can, uh, you know, seal the fate of, of different legislation by changing the rules. Um, and so, you know, one thing they have done is proposed a rule that, for instance, um, will let uh, bills going through this particular education committee, I believe, bypass the House uh, Ways and Means Committee, um, where you would get some understanding more of sort of the financial impact. Um, and so that's sort of maybe to avoid the focus on the cost of it, uh, right, especially because that doesn't always align with Republican views on uh, lowering spending, Um and so it just sort of highlights, though, the power when, you, especially when a party has a supermajority, that they can alter the procedure by which we pass legislation to make it easier for certain legislation to get passed. Uh, and you know, when you have a supermajority, you have a lot more control over those rules, and so yeah. that's sort of how they can fast track it.
1: Yeah, but but we have to say a supermajority uh, that they gained. Uh, because they had enough support from voters. Uh, they increased their majorities in both chambers uh, due to the the last elections. Uh, Dennis, uh, before we move on, your final thoughts on this in particular. We have, um, you know, the, the, the opponents expressing deep concerns about the impact on public school funding. But also we heard in that clip here, uh, too, from one of the uh, opponents uh, voicing concerns uh, yesterday evening That um, And we've had this from callers in previous shows. Will private schools, are they held to the same oversight? Uh, That uh, opponent there saying, what about the possibility of discrimination in these private schools against uh, LGBTQ uh, students?
2: Well, that's the difficulty if you bump up against... um equal protection or discrimination sorts of issues on the one side with religious beliefs and tenets on the other. I mean, the Supreme Court is, is, is hearing this week or is sometime in this time period about whether somebody can refuse, I guess, to bake a cake for a uh, a gay or lesbian couple because it conflicts with her religious beliefs. And is that permissible? Is that discrimination? So again, uh, even at the level of private schools, private school might want to the, – the, the issue has always been we want to accept or we want to take the public money from those who do say that, but we don't want to be governed by public standards or regulations. There have been some privates and religiously-oriented schools in the past who say, no, we're not going to take government money because that comes with strings. The question mm-hmm. is now, with this Republican supermajority, whether, in fact, the, uh, the governor and the Republican majorities will uh, uh, have strings attached to any of these policies.
1: Okay. Um, uh, let's uh, finish up with one final call on this issue. Of course, Politics Day continues in, in, until uh, so, uh, 1 o'clock. Um, Jeremy is with us from Solon. Hi, Jeremy.
6: Yeah, uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call, Ben.
1: Sure, sure thing. What's on your mind?
2: Yeah, my question is we obviously Republicans have a
1: supermajority,
6: majority, uh, but as far as like the power of the people, what is
2: the feeling across the state? Have there been any official uh, polls to whether most uh, Iowans are for or against it, uh, this, uh, this bill being
0: passed? And I will take my answer off here.
1: Okay, Jeremy, thank you very much. Let me just chip in here. Last night when we had that public hearing, the House Democrats, uh, who opposed the bill, said 73% of the comments submitted online opposed the bill, 27% in favor. Um, uh, Dennis, do you know anything about um, Jeremy's question there?
2: Question there. Um I might defer to uh, Megan in that regard. I think she does more with public opinion kinds of issues, but I think that certainly you can't judge from who called because that's not a representative sample for the whole right. state. So we right. can't tell yeah. there.
1: Megan, Megan, what would you have to say here? Anything to add?
2: Anything to
5: add? Yeah, so I you know I don't know. I was just trying to look up quickly if uh you know the the uh if any of the papers is really going to be the best source for our opinion, Um, the most likely people to have run polls, perhaps that have been public. Uh, I think one thing that's difficult about assessing this right now too, is that it's changed even in this session. So last Mm -hmm. year, you know, I think we had some public opinion polls that were not favorable towards um, the voucher plan. But uh, since then, you know, the, I think last year, the iteration, um, that we saw always like no matter what sort of in perpetuity had income caps on it. Uh, and now we've raised them. So my guess is, you know, do something like removing the income requirements and making these accessible to everyone, even those who are extremely wealthy and can afford, you know, private school tuition without feeling it on their bottom line much, uh, that they could also access these funds. Uh, my guess is that that's going to lower support, uh, quite a bit. Obviously it's going to increase support among those who would now benefit from the policy. Um, But, you know, my, my sense is that public opinion was not hugely in favor of it, but I think that uh, a lot of Republicans are um, persuaded by the rhetoric, and I think Democrats are persuaded by the rhetoric of their elected officials. Um, But, you know, it it all comes down, I think, to that rural support and people who are aware of the issue and, uh, you know, thinking about how it's going to impact their own
7: schools.
1: Yeah. About three minutes before we need to take a break, but let's at least start with this, another what appears to be a Republican priority among uh, lawmakers. Um, uh, The Republican House leaders proposing two classroom bills having to do with gender identity in Iowa schools. Uh, These were some of the first to be filed by House Republicans this session, of course, an indication of their priorities. House File 8 restricts school staff from giving Instruction of any kind on gender identity and sexual orientation in K through third grade classrooms, including tests, surveys or handouts. House File 9 prohibits school staff from affirming a student's gender identity and preferred pronouns if it's different from their birth certificate unless the teacher has written approval from the student's parent. Uh, This applies to students across all grade levels. Um, So let's kick it off. I'm sure we'll have to talk about this in the second half. Uh, We'll carry on on, on through that. Of course, this comes after, and we reported a lot here on IPR, uh, the Linmar School District in eastern Iowa passing a policy allowing students to ask the district for gender-affirming support without notifying parents. Um, your lead off thoughts, uh, uh, Dennis
2: well, you know we always say, whatever our political and cultural orientation, we always have talked about affirming the primary role, the primacy of parents in deciding the education of their children, in deciding what kinds of values their children learn, internalize, and and come to us expound and this uh, th- this whole pushback, if you will, on the part of Republicans. Is mm-hmm. a pushback against uh, a kind of cultural liberalism that 's existed for some decades now in the states i mean if 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 we uh, we hear a lot about identity politics in a way, this is a kind of reverse more traditionalist identity politics. That's, uh, that, that, that's a pushback against what uh, many people on the Republican side think is an overly broad liberalization of various cultural norms. And again, mm-hmm. the, uh, the flashpoint for this sort of thing is always the schools.
1: Okay. Very quickly, we have about a minute left. A minute left. Megan, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the opposition to this.
5: Yeah, you know, so I think the opposition to this is coming from uh, especially groups sort of uh, allied with LGBTQ adults and youth, um, thinking about how it's going to impact them, thinking about how it's going to impact their mental health uh, in schools and sort of whether or not schools are a safe place for them. Um, The only other comment too I want to talk about is that this is not really a unique or creative move from Iowa. Uh, This is coming from other states. This is coming from national organizations. And so, you know, if you sort of look across what's happening in a lot of states controlled by Republicans right now, uh, this is sort of an iteration of of those bills. And so you can sort of see how they fared in other states as well.
1: Okay, if you'd like to comment on what you've heard in the first half hour is... Through a number of political issues, 1-866-780-9100. Our email, river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Dennis Goldford of Drake University. Um, Yeah, uh, Megan, right on there. Um, uh,
0: We'll be back with Megan and Dennis in just a moment. I'm Ben Kiefer. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including above and beyond cancer. And we are back with this Politics Wednesday edition
1: of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with Megan Goldberg of Cornell College and Dennis Goldford of Drake University, our two political analysts. On Wednesdays, of course, we like to, um, there are far too many topics, issues to get through, but get through as many of the issues we think uh, are top of mind for Iowans, whether they be Iowa legislative issues or national issues. And sometimes we even go to international issues when dealing a lot with um, The Iowa legislature uh, and the Republican priorities here in the second week of this 2023 session in the first half hour, wanted to move on to one we hadn't touched on uh, up to now, capital punishment. Capital punishment abolished here in Iowa uh, in 1965 by uh, then-Governor Harold Hughes. Now legislation, and this is not the first time it's happened since then, legislation afoot to reinstate capital punishment. Um, but we have to remember it has not been debated on the floor of either chamber of the Iowa legislature since the 90s. And uh, State Senator Brad Zahn reintroduced a bill into the Senate Judiciary Committee that could bring back the death penalty in Iowa under some conditions for murder in the first degree and when it involves kidnapping and sexual abuse Uh, offenses against a minor dennis uh, you've got a long political view here i don't think uh, yours or mine stretches back uh, to the death penalty in iowa but uh, uh, share your thoughts about this latest move and of course we now have increased majorities by the republicans and it's not been debated on the floor of either chamber as i mentioned since the 1990s Um, maybe this increased republican majority would uh, bring it further along in the process
2: they might well do that by cracky with our long memories but uh i think that uh, we, we certainly know that the republicans have always fostered the impression that they are the party of law and order and uh <clears throat> strictness with regard to when uh criminal activity and criminal punishment they Dem- they've always painted the democrats as a party of permissiveness uh so in a way we may see some of that in this particular case but you know according to my criminology 101 understanding with regard to the various forms of punishment there there are four rationales for punishment uh and people when people look at imprisonment versus the death penalty these are the sorts of things they look at the first rationale is rehabilitation uh democrats have always focused on rehabilitation in many ways uh, death penalty doesn't uh rehabilitate anybody Many criminologists, I believe, say that there's sort of an iffy proposition, rehabilitation. The second rationale is incapacitation. You want to put somebody in a place where you can't do it again. Death penalty certainly does that. Supposedly, so does uh, imprisonment. Uh, The two rationales the public is more familiar with, I think, are number one deterrence.
4: We're Mm -hmm. going
2: to uh, subject somebody to a severe penalties and sending a message that you know if somebody else is thinking of doing this horrible act. Um, You better think twice, because this is what could happen to you. And it's always been debated the extent to which the death penalty actually deters anybody, uh, particularly in a crime of passion. Um, And then the fourth, and this is what we see, I think, more from uh, uh, Mr. Zahn and others on the Republican side is retribution. In other words, it's the eye for an eye element of punishment. And um, and and that sometimes is more in favor, more in in, in favor in the public, sometimes less in favor in the public. But certainly this focus on the death penalty is an attempt to burnish the Republicans strong law and order um, intolerance of crime and violence reputation. And um, I'm sure they're daring Democrats to kind of oppose that.
1: Yeah. And some some context here in for the, the national scene here. According to some um, look at the Pew, Pew research um, that I had th- this morning, majority of states have the death penalty. That may be a surprise to many people, but far fewer states use it regularly. Uh, Twenty-seven states authorized by the, um, by the uh, U.S. states authorizing it, but um, a growing number of states having done away with the death penalty in recent years uh, through legislation or a court ruling. Your thoughts, uh, Megan Goldberg?
5: Yeah, so you know, I was I was looking up some of the public opinion, although I was also looking up again at, at the number of states who do still have uh, the death penalty. And you know, if you sort of look, if you if you go back in time, Iowa was one of the first states to eliminate it, uh, in sort of a tradition of progressivism that you know I think was more alive and well in Iowa in previous uh, decades. And now, if you look at the map, it's like we're in company uh, with. Uh, <laughs> The states on the East Coast, like New York, Massachusetts, uh, you know, Connecticut, New Jersey, and states on the West Coast, like California, and so you know, while a majority of states do have the death penalty, I'm sort of trying to like do quick mental math here. I don't know that a majority of Americans live in a state with the death penalty, uh, much less one where it's obviously, as you said, used. Um, but I think Dennis is exactly right that this is, you know, there Republicans are defending it. At, by sort of pointing out the narrow scope in which it would be brought back just for this particular type of crime. And it's a, you know, it's a sort of awkward position to put Democrats in, in terms of opposing this, even though they are generally opposed to the death penalty, because it's talking about, you know, a crime that is um, very appalling to, you know, 99.99999% of people. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, again, as Anna said, part of this larger Republican package, and especially given what they're sort of focused on, um, it's not just strategic, uh, in terms of it's awkward for Democrats that oppose it, but also part of this sort of larger, uh, concern, especially among the far right, especially among, uh, parents, uh, in, in sort of on the right side of the spectrum, uh, about things like trafficking, um, and grooming and it's all sort of in this like bigger package around culture war uh issues around kids too
1: mm-hmm. and one worry i i see in the opposition to that that if this were be passed into law with admittedly a narrow a narrow scope for who uh what kind of perpetrators would possibly be considered for it, it might be the thin end of the wedge with Uh, capital punishment later being um, considered for other crimes. Here is a quote from Marty Ryan, president of Iowans against the death penalty. He disagrees with this bill. Um, He says perpetrators don't think they're going to get caught in the first place, so the deterrence of the death penalty would be null, he said. Um, And and then he says, uh, in in terms of the legislative move here, he said once they get in the door, talking about, I suppose, Republicans here with this measure, with the death penalty, they'll always want to try to expand it, he says. Who's next? Um, And uh, and so uh, Marty Ryan there with that facet of his opposition. Well, uh, we'll be talking about that should it advance in the next coming years, unless Dennis or or Megan wanted to jump in with a final comment on this before we move on.
2: I just wanted to add that uh, one of the difficulties proponents of the death penalty have to get around is what I call the oops factor. In other words, suppose you think you've got the right guy or gal in some cases, and you do apply the death penalty, and then it comes to light that you didn't have the right guy. Now, if you put somebody in prison, you can't give that person the years back for which he was falsely imprisoned because he actually didn't do the crime, but you can let him out. With the death mm-hmm. penalty, if you have that oops factor, it's too late. You can't, uh, you can't offer that person anything for having been wrongly put to death. So that's always been a, a very difficult problem for proponents of the death penalty to deal with.
1: Dennis Goldford of Drake University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. uh, About 15 minutes left of our program. Let's move to the national scene quickly, see what we get to here. President Biden uh, facing a Department of Justice investigation after his lawyers found classified documents at his Delaware residence and an office in D.C. They were found in multiple instances with a White House lawyer announcing on Saturday five more pages had been found at Biden's home. On Thursday, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointing former Justice Department official to lead a DOJ probe. Um, Now, uh, we've talked about this in uh, previous programs. Details that have emerged so far don't closely parallel those involving former President Trump's uh, retention of classified documents. Let's hear a, a, a couple of opposing views here. Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican of Ohio, chairs now the House Judiciary Committee. He told Fox News uh, last thursday that the timing of the announcement after the election was suspicious and he accused the white house of a double standard when it comes to oversight i think there are tons of questions and maybe the most important is why did they wait to tell us mm-hmm. you know wh- wh- and, and and frankly what's happened since november 2nd until january 10th january 11th when we learned this information so i think there's just tons of questions we have that, that, you know, the, the, the press was all over this when it was President Trump. So, again, I think the double standard is obvious and then the tons of questions I think every American has. Let's hear from outgoing chair of House Intelligence Committee Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California, here telling ABC News on Sunday that the investigation should be handled similarly to the investigation of documents found at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence.
8: We have asked for an assessment uh, in the intelligence community of the Mar-a-Lago documents. Uh, I think we ought to get that same assessment of the documents uh, found in the, uh, in the uh, think tank as well as the home of President Biden. Uh, I'd like to know what these documents were. I'd like to know what the IC's assessment is, whether there was any risk of exposure and what the harm would be and whether any mitigation needs to be done. Uh, I think that would be appropriate uh, and consistent with what we requested in the case of Mar-a-Lago.
1: In this interview, Schiff went on to say that the Biden administration's approach to the handling of the situation was different as the Justice Department or archives were alerted as soon as the documents were found. Start us off, Megan, with with this that's uh, been simmering and um, uh, giving the, the White House uh, uh, some problems.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, I think that. Yeah, um, in some in some ways, the actual details of what happened compared to Mar-a-Lago are are going to be irrelevant for most people who are uh, paying attention to this issue. Um, you know, I think that supporters of Biden are are going to assume that it's different, assume it was an honest mistake, and I think supporters of Trump um, are going to point out the ways in which it, it seems the same to them. Um, or argue that, you know, we're not as mad about it, even if people, even if they are just as mad as Democrats were about Trump. Um, But I think that, you know, in sort of like good news that like the fact that the Justice Department uh, is able to, you know, hopefully unhindered, investigate a sitting president um, is a good sign of like a functioning government. Uh, And so, so, you know, that was some of the concern during the Trump administration was that he was uh, taking strides to prevent, you know, that sort of um, oversight on his office when it came to the Justice Department. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks who are sort of concerned about that are paying attention to to what degree the Justice Department can actually conduct an investigation now in this administration.
6: Mm -hmm.
1: Dennis Goldford.
2: Well, I think Megan's right in this regard. Certainly, I think your average person is simply going to see two statements. Uh, Trump had documents he shouldn't have had. Biden had documents he shouldn't have had or continue to have. And I think the average person may not look any further than that. And, of course, the devil's in the details, the so distinctions matter. Biden did supposedly uh, turn these over uh, to the appropriate, the archives people and the other appropriate authorities, even if he didn't make this public. There's a question about why that but did not occur in terms of the publicity. Whereas former President Trump, by all accounts, uh, not only uh, resisted turning those over, he ignored a subpoena for these documents, which is what led the FBI to come in to seize them. So, yes, the circumstances are very different, but I think for the average person, uh, he or she's not going to pay attention to those circumstances very closely. And uh, this is certainly something that the Biden administration absolutely did not need when they're trying to get on with everything else. It gives the Republicans an opening to go right back at them.
1: Mm hmm. Let's talk about the debt ceiling, another burning national issue that's coming to the fore, a major worry for Washington right now, uh, fears that the federal government is hitting a debt ceiling. Uh, spiking last week after the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent a letter to party leaders in Congress, uh, the letter urging them to raise the limit before the expected deadline. Uh, that deadline she named last week is tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, now, uh, however, uh, House conservatives threatening to delay the process by demanding deep spending cuts on the uh, Democratic Senate, the House's. Uh, White House has has signaled that they won't accept that. Uh, So let's hear a couple of, um, uh, well, uh, pro and con here, if you will. Uh, Let's hear from the House Speaker, new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, on on January 17th, uh, saying that the House Republicans would not support an increase of the debt limit without enacting spending cuts.
8: I don't know if you have any children, but if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase and again and again, would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? We're six months away. Why wouldn't we sit down now? and change this behavior that we would put ourselves on a, f- a more fiscally strong position it would make the future generation make our nation stronger make the economics and uh... stronger for this country i think that's why we should sit down and i would i would welcome it's the first conversation i had with the president of winning uh, speaker. The things i wanted to sit down and talk with him about who wants to put the nation in some type of threat at the last minute of death saying so nobody wants to do that that's why we're asking let's let's change our behavior now let's sit down he's the president we're the majority in the house the democrats are the majority in the senate and let's exactly the way the founders designed congress to work find the compromise and find the the common sense compromise that puts us back onto a balanced budget that i believe every household Every state does this, every city, every county. Why would the Democrats sit back and say, just raise it with no discussion? Nobody else can do that, and I don't think the
1: American people want it. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, now let's hear another voice here um, opposing that. uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre criticizing this approach at a recent press briefing.
7: On Friday it was reported that republicans have so-called plan to prioritize payments if congress fails to address the debt ceiling so i want to be very very clear here as i have been as the president has been uh, this is not a plan it is a recipe for economic catastrophe as president biden has made clear congress must deal with the debt limit and must do so without conditions but congressional republicans are threatening to hold the nation's full faith and credit, a mandate of the Constitution hostage to their demands to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, and to cut Medicaid, brinksmanship that threatens the global economy. Their latest idea is that rather than paying its bills, the United States should make payment to wealthy bondholders, including foreign investors, and stop payments for border security, food safety, nursing homes, school lunches, the FAA, drug enforcement, and other programs Americans rely on every single day. This so-called prioritization scheme makes Republicans' priorities pretty clear, crystal clear, if I may add,
1: Okay, another issue, Dennis and Megan, with uh, nuance here, whether that gets through uh, to uh, most people paying attention, we'll, we'll see. Dennis, uh, your thoughts here. We had uh, uh, the uh, speaker then comparing this to, you know, giving a child a credit card there, probably mo- a little bit more <laughs> um, uh, involved than that uh, parallel. But what, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, presumably, uh, if the speaker is correct, uh, you don't want to give a credit card to someone who seems to be incapable of of using it wisely. At the same time, I would hope the speaker believes that whether you think the spending was good or not, you're supposed to pay off what you've already run up on the credit card. And that's the national debt. Uh, the, the debt is big. Now, it rose by the figures I've been looking at roughly um, in four years of President Trump. It rose by about eight trillion dollars. During the Trump years, Uh, I don't recall hearing much on the Republican side about the dangers of the national debt when you had a Republican president. So, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is supposed to be good for the gander in this regard. Let's be consistent. But again, this we, 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 we this is an attempt by Republicans to use this need to expand the debt ceiling to continue to cover what the government already owes for spending that's already occurred as leverage to try to force some spending restraint in the future, although their record on spending restraint when they controlled the presidency and the arms of government uh, wasn't so wonderful either.
6: Mm -hmm.
1: If Congress fails, and we have weeks before to avert this, if Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling, Uh, The government would automatically default on its payments. Um, There are ramifications being predicted, a stock market crash, recession, rise in unemployment, according to economic experts. Uh, Now, it's also important to note that in more than 100 years since the limit was enacted, this has never happened, a default on, on the debt ceiling. Megan, your thoughts?
5: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, we did have this situation in 2011, I believe, uh, a similar situation. And we did see, even though we did, um, you know, it wasn't sort of like the worst case catastrophe, uh, we did see economic uh, implications. Um, I think Dennis is is spot on, of course, that um, in a situation where you have a divided Congress, uh, House Republicans are going to use this is probably one of their most effective uh that they could use to get some concessions from senate democrats um you know on the other hand i think there is if you're a a republican especially if you're a new member of congress you might be a little bit concerned about uh threats to cut spending in social security and medicare um those are those are usually not popular decisions um and so the battle is going to be over sort of what can they cut and what are members willing to cut uh, that they, they then have to go explain to their constituents, you know, why Social Security payments are lower, why Medicare is worse, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they don't really want that. So there's there are going to be political costs. Yeah. You know, Republicans can say that they deliver you know, reductions in spending, but they also have to deal with constituents who then feel the impact uh, of those policies, too.
1: Mm-hmm. With about a minute left, uh, Dennis, can I go to you? As we zoom out, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the, the this Congress, House, U.S. House, uh, what about those concessions he had to make in order to be elected Speaker? Uh, what do you predict uh, for the U.S. House under the Republicans? Quickly, please.
2: We, we, we don't know precisely what all of them were, but I think what speaks most to the nature of them, the extent of them, was uh, one of the people who opposed him said, we ran out of things to ask for. So he basically gave them the whole story, anything they wanted in order to have this role. Wow.
1: Okay. Me- Megan, a few seconds for you.
5: Yeah, I, that is the thing that I read too, which was quite shocking. I think that, uh, I think that we're going to see a probably a weaker uh, speaker of the house uh, and sort of what implications that has. Um, it sort of remains to be seen, but I think that, you know, McCarthy does not have an easy road ahead of him uh, in terms of keeping his caucus together uh, and making sure that they can uh, effectively use the opportunities that they have uh, to sort of get concessions from Senate Democrats. I think that he's going to have a really hard time uh, getting things done, as we said, And I don't think he necessarily unified the caucus, even though he okay. won in the end.
1: That's all for now. And to, to more to come, of course, because it's politics. Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, Dennis Goldford of Drake University. Megan and Dennis, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Ben. You bet. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: Today's River to River produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Grant Gerlach and Danny Gere. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care. Talk to you again tomorrow.